0: In 2021, more than three in four teachers reported frequent job related stress, compared to 40% of other working adults. 27% of teachers reported symptoms of depression, compared to just 10% of other adults. Welcome to Kids Can Healthy Kids, Better World, a podcast from Action for Healthy Kids. Hello, and welcome back to Kids Can, presented by Action for Healthy Kids, a show highlighting everyday issues children face today and featuring conversations on how you can help the kids in your life. I'm your host, Rob Bisegli. Today, we're joined by social entrepreneur, diplomat, and an advocate for change, Claudia Edelman. Claudia is the founder of We Are All Human Foundation. A New York based nonprofit foundation dedicated to advancing the agenda of diversity, inclusion, and equity through developing and hosting global, national, and regional events, conducting research and developing research publications. On this episode, we discuss her work with We Are All Human, some of her past global campaigns, her perspective on Hispanic child health, and we even get a little insight into what she's discovered in her 25 years as a visionary leader. Hi, Claudia. We first met a few months ago during the Hispanic Leadership Summit in New York. And so first, thank you so much for inviting me as an ally to your movement. I was so impressed by your work, your agenda, and the passionate people who participated in that summit. It was really inspiring. And of course, welcome to Kids Can.
1: Oh, thank you so very much for having me. This is an honor. I truly admire you, your organization, what you're doing. And honestly think that the more we can do this, what we're doing, Rob, the more that, you know, like passionate leaders, when purpose meets passions were unstoppable. And I'm here ideally looking for even more people that want to join the kind of things that you're dreaming of and that I'm dreaming of for our community. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you so, so much for having made it to the Hispanic, Leadership Summit and join, you know, like the 350 leaders that believe that Latinos have to be seen, heard, and valued, and that we have to unify forces so that we can shine together.
0: Indeed, indeed. I learned so much, so it was so great. As you might know, the premise of the podcast that we do at Action for Healthy Kids and all of the work that we do at Action for Healthy Kids is that our early life experiences and the adults who care for us when we're young have a transformative impact on our lives. So I was hoping you could tell me about a transformative experience from your childhood.
1: Look, I mean, like I think that I have, like many other people, a place in time, if you go on memory lane, that really, really start like defining or you can see uh, how it starts defining the drawing of who you are and also what you do. And I think that for me, I can see two things that, really defined, you know, like who I am and what I do. And and the first one is my parents playing basketball. Both of them were athletes. My mother, as a fact, was a professional basketball player and she got pregnant and was about to go to the Olympics in Mexico representing, uh, representing Mexico. She was part of the national team. And then, you know, like they had three kids and two of my siblings died. They died exactly at the same, in the same form. So growing until they were 18 months old, fast, fast, fast fast development, much rapid development than normal, but then hitting the mark of nine months and then just going backwards. So you can only imagine that, you know, like they were like, oh my God, they are walking too far too early or running too early. But then they started like from running to walking, walking to crawling and then, you know, sitting down. And so I grew up, Rob, under the microscope. Pretty much everyone in my family was looking at when am I going to just like hit that moment and start going backwards. So pretty much I remember having like 1000 eyes around me and all of a sudden people say like, well, she's, she's strong. This one's strong as a fact, you know, she's stronger than dead. And also with a sense of mission, I remember my mother always told me, and you can only imagine what a mother can feel after losing two kids. She was always saying like, there must be a reason, you know, like you probably have a mission to accomplish and so on. So I grew up thinking that there was a reason for me not to die the way that, you know, like probably I was destined to. Number two, I was stronger than death. And number three is that Probably everything was possible to me. So when you, when you have that type of somehow experience and you, I didn't even realize that not everybody had like this sense of, you know, like of everything is possible and so on. Then I, I understand my life of taking in and saying like, we can defeat tuberculosis and malaria for God's sake in this time of life. I'm not going to let mosquitoes be the number one killer of humanity or I, there's no way that you can convince me that it's not possible to try to, you know, like eradicate extreme poverty because we have, we have done that in the last 20 years. We have half the number of people that are living in extreme poverty. Doesn't mean that it's perfect, but but it means that we can do it. And so that was a transformative experience for me and really defines the way I see life. Yeah.
0: Before you even go on, Claudia, can I ask a follow-up question to that? First, I, I can't imagine what that would be like as a young child and in your family. How did your parents cope with that as you were growing up? What kind of impact did it have on them?
1: So it was really heavy and it was really hard. And I think that there's no one I admired more than my mother. And she was always, she was always like a, literally with this philosophy of, I'm going to give you an example. So my mother is so strong and so positive. And I think that it was a result of that experience that she was a, uh, a basketball player, as I mentioned, but then she had kids and then they died and so she was like, well, what do I do now? So she became an economist and she was a pretty serious economist and she was having a great, you know, like stable life. And all of a sudden when she was 40, she decided she didn't want to do that really, that what she wanted to do was to become an actress. And so imagine a 45 single mother going and saying, I want to become an actress and I want to be in soap operas and in television. So I remember actually my mother holding my hand, you know, like in a way shaking and being really scared and petrified, but she was not going to let fear take the decisions for her life. She was not going to be fearless because we can't be fearless, but she was going to be fear free to take the decisions that were going to be with her. So I think that one of the biggest lessons and one of the things that I saw again and again from my mother as as a child, how important it is to, you know, like take fear and transform it into action or take it like transform fear into love so that you can live your life not pretending to be fearless, but actually trying to be fear-free and taking the decisions you have. And that's actually how she died last year of COVID. She was fighting COVID 169 days without, you know, like without giving up and giving it a great fight and teaching us all how important it is to love your life and love what you do and actually stick to the things you want and just like Living in a a way that you're not going to let fear drive your decisions, but you're going to live with love, even though, you know, like it's hard.
0: So sorry to hear about your mother. I should say we do share another thing in common that I just found out about, which is a passion and fanaticism for basketball. We are going to have to talk about this some other day (laughs) because my family and I are absolute fanatics, but I interrupted you. So you were about to talk about a second experience in your childhood. I think anyway, you were about to talk about a second thing that you thought was really important for you.
1: Okay. So, and again, just sharing this in the spirit of, you know, like pretty much trying to always be, you know, like identifying where were you always authentic that you can go back into memory lane and say like, yep, that I started. So in my country, Robin, Mexico in 1985, there were a series of earthquakes that shook up the entire city, literally half of Mexico fell down, fell apart. And so me, like in anyone that I know, went to the streets, one trying to get Shelter and not having your house collapse. And number two, to try to find our family and friends. So all of a sudden the entire city of Mexico became a city of volunteers. So everyone was trying to do something. And me, I was in a group that was sweeping streets, trying to find whether people were trapped in the buildings that collapsed. And I remember distinctively, Rob, that I was walking and it was so confusing. And I was the only... Teenager in that group, it was all full men and big, and I remember them huge as a fact. And they were walking, and all of a sudden something stopped me, and I just stopped and opened up my big mouth and started screaming out my lungs like, "Stop! Stop! Stop! Come back!" And so there's this one guy that turns around and looks like me and said, "Like what?" And I was like, "I think I heard a voice." And he looked at me pretty angry. and said, "Like think or heard." And I just looked at him and started screaming even louder, like, come back, come back, stop. And I had no clue really whether it was an illusion or a voice or an instinct or what. But when by the time he came back, it was clear there was a voice of someone trapped in that building that I really didn't hear at the beginning. But we looked at each other and started screaming out loud, like, come back, come back. So two more people came and the four of us started screaming out loud and more people started coming and more people until we were able to start together to move moving that huge wall. And after a long time of pushing, you know, like light came in and there they were, the eyes of this girl, eyelashes full of dust and looking at us like saying, like, you got me right. And that was the first time in my life in which I felt useful. I felt that I was able to do something, that I was seeing the mother hugging her baby, being petrified of not finding her, and I was able to do that. But not only that, I understood, Rob, that, you know, like my father always complained like, oh, Claudia, you're so loud, you're so loud. I was like, yay, it's awesome to be loud. It's awesome to be loud. And I wanted to just like keep on doing it. And I've been blessed enough actually that I've been doing that for 25 years, literally just like being loud and bringing attention to think of people to things that maybe they don't hear or they don't see and that maybe I don't hear either at the beginning, but really thinking that there's something when you believe in something, you are able to attract the opinion. And I do think that it is so important for me to share that story sometimes because we're told so often to not be yourself and not to be loud and not to do this. And you try to be someone you're not. And I do think that it was like one of the biggest blessings that I had in my life to be able to very early age in time, understand that I didn't have to hide being loud, that it could be a lot for my life. And that was a good thing.
0: Yeah. So you, you've already touched on this or, or maybe even answered it altogether, but I'll ask it just in case there's something more. These experiences that you had in your early life, what kind of impact did they have on your life? and who you are, and what you believe today.
1: Just like on the earthquake example, I just know that the problems that we're facing today as humanity, not single actor can't resolve. There's no way that we can provide food for those that need it, provide education to those that deserve it, to everyone, that we cannot tackle the big problems unless we're doing it together. And I like big problems and I'm a fixer. And I do think that it comes from those experiences of my past, but I do think being influenced by everything is possible. I become a natural optimist about like the things that we can do. And because I actually see that it is possible, then I think I'm not so much a optimist, I'm more a possibilist that believes that everything is possible. But I'm really happy also to recognize the superpower that I have and to recognize and try to incentivize my kids, for example, to see what their superpower is so that they can go through it and thrive through life. And mine is convening and bringing attention to things. So I try to convene as many people as possible to fight for something that is really important to do and to do it in a way that is raising attention of all so that, you know, like we can really move walls.
0: Yeah, that's a perfect segue to what I want to talk about next, which is your work, what you're doing now, and especially uh, We Are All Human and some of the other efforts. You've had an incredible career already working for international organizations and now your own organization advocating for such critical causes. What is it about your current work with We Are All Human and the Hispanic Leadership Summit that excites you?
1: When I set up We Are All Human, it was with a pure intention to remind everyone of that single principle. We are all human. We all belong to the same human family. And Rob, the problem is we forget. And we forget a number of times because, you know, like technology has not been a great enabler of, you know, like understanding how things are. You're all of a sudden in a bubble and the algorithms feed you with the things that you want to hear, with the people like that look like you. So there's just a constant reiteration of what you already believe or what you want to believe. And all of a sudden, our worlds and our minds starts getting smaller. And I think that we start creating a sense of the otherness. And that is very dangerous because all of a sudden when you get out of your bubble, which is not real, the bubbles are not reality. The reality is that the world is absolutely diverse. You just go around and look at everyone and we are all different. And diversity is a great thing. But if you're like all of a sudden thinking that the world looks like you, thinks like you, and you see someone that is not, you're like, Ah, who are you? And why are you in this universe? And you don't deserve the same access that I have and what we have. And that is really dangerous and can create things like populism and nationalism and you know like and, and can create things like Brexit or you know like or divisions and people willing to build walls and and things that you know like really divide us as a society. And the reality, Rob, is that if you cut your finger, you might have a headache and it 's not the same organ, but we 're all interconnected so what really excites me is that all of us sort of in the last five years when I was you know like advocating for diversity and inclusion as one of the most important banners that the world is going to face all of a sudden it became real. We're all by far more racial aware. We're all about, like all the world, young people have a sense of justice and social creation. That is really exciting because what it means is that we can move the needle from tolerance to acceptance. It's already great that we're tolerant. I tolerate you is great, but I want more. I want people to accept each other. And the work that we're doing is incentivizing corporations mainly to take at diversity and inclusion really seriously, very focused right now in the Latino community in America. It seems like, I think
0: to your point, we seem to be looking past each other these days. Two of my kids go to a high school, and I was just hearing today, there was a protest, and I will not even make a political statement about it. We'll stay out of that. But there was a protest at their school around mask wearing in the school. And that Uh, like I said, I won't even talk. We don't even need to talk about that. But there was a chant that was taking place during that protest. And it was about the president of the United States. And I just thought to myself, oh, my gosh, we really are not communicating with each other. We're not seeing each other as human beings and as other people who are fellow Americans. We're now in this game where we're looking at the other side like they're almost like aliens from another planet. And I just think to your point, there's so much work to be done to come together. So my question is, is how does your past work or how does your current work, I should say, build on your past work? Or is it different? You know, the work that you are doing right now is, are there similarities and differences that you think are important to talk about?
1: Oh, absolutely. No, look, I mean, like I've been doing the same wine, just like different bottles my entire life. I am a marketer at heart. And what I do is try to mobilize as many hearts and minds of people just to do things that I think are really important to be done. Um, The way that the example of the earthquake works, that's pretty much, you know, like what I've been doing. And I think that the exciting things of our time, and you and I have that opportunity, Rob, is that young people like students, like your kids in high schools and and schools, they are by far more aware and more willing actually to make choices. They want to buy from brands that are good, that have a good heart, that are not, you know, like different to their values. They want to actually go into places and work into places where they can be themselves. And and that is really causing a change in the older generations, in corporations, in brands, in politics. So I'm very excited about that. I think that the last 25 years of my career have consolidated in what I'm doing right now, which is pretty much create, if you want, master plans. I'm a good master planner, so I'm creating a master plan for the Latino community and for corporations and to individuals so that we can have single dreams and shared dreams and we can have action plans for everyone to advance and make change really simple. So I truly believe that all of us want the best. We just don't know sometimes how to do it. And the easier that you have frameworks for people to engage with Latinos, for example, as employees, as a community, as consumers, the easier I make it for Latino children to understand that we're stars, like America's made of stars, and we're one of them, and that we deserve to be seen, heard, and valued. The easier that I make it for students and for universities to to push, to transform, Latinos from invisible to visible and from negative to positive, the easier that I make it for people to read about their role models, the better and the faster I think that we're going to have a society that realizes that America, again, is made of stars and that we in this universe, every star counts and makes the sky shinier and brighter.
0: Yeah. So you've mentioned a couple of different frameworks I wanted to talk about. So we've talked a little bit about We Are All Human, but also your Hispanic promise and your Hispanic star. Can you tell us how these things fit together and why you've worked with others to build them?
1: We're All Human is an organization that aims to remind people that we're all human, advancing diversity and inclusion. The Hispanic star is a realization, drop. when I I got married four years ago and I was like, oh, that's it. I'm fried. You know, like I'm saying in America, I'm no longer going to be a diplomat traveling all around the world. And uh, I realized that my choice was going to affect my daughter to make 50 percent of the salary because the Hispanics made 50 percent of the salary, the lowest paid of all. And I thought that that was going to be very unfair. And starting to dig into the numbers, it just didn't make sense. Hispanics, are incredible contributors to America. We bring more jobs, more youth, more taxes, more employment, more consumer than any other group in America. And yet we're underrepresented, misrepresented and undervalued. We're positive contributors to the country, but we're not seen. And when we're seen, we're seen as someone we are not. And so I started digging into what is this issue? Because the reality is that we're great. We pay taxes, we're graduating from school. So there's There's no real issues about like the Latino community that are like prevalent and that we cannot solve. The perception of Latinos is really bad. And that perception hinders and and stops the self-confidence of kids that they don't have the courage to go and say, like, can I be paid better? Can I be educated better? Can I raise my hand? Imagine just in a classroom, in a school classroom, that one kid is always beaten up. Like, you're not good. You cannot say, how do you expect that kid to participate the way that others do? So what I realized is that there's a reverse marketing problem here. There's an enigma that it didn't make sense. And I couldn't square the circle. And one of the problems that I found is that Latinos are very fragmented. Mexicans, Colombians, Venezuelans, we don't talk to each other. We don't have a single front. We don't have shared dreams. And the contrary, because we've been, you know, like living in a scarcity mentality, we all elbow each other a little bit. So one of the things that I tried to create was a unifying platform and even a unifying symbol for Latinos to have Latino unity and Latino pride. So we created something like the rainbow for the LGBTQ called the Hispanic star, which is a a symbol to for Latinos to unify, but also to feel that we're stars, that we're powerful, that we're positive. And so we're working with every single Latino organization in the country representing more than 10 million Latinos with a single dream for every Latino to be seen, heard and valued. And we're trying to do our best to bring platforms of visibility to mobilize corporate America to engage more genuinely and more appropriately with us uh, as employees, as the community, as consumers. We have 30 Hispanic startups all across the country for Latinos just to unify to help each other, to support each other, to buy from each other, to give jobs for each other, just openly supporting each other. And that has been extraordinary. And we work with more than 280 companies because they see this power and this energy and everybody wants to be part of it because... The numbers are there. They want to hire us in the future. They want to sell to us in the future. And I do think that this positive and proactive symbol and desire to unify is moving forward because Latinos, really what we want is to progress. And I think that an agenda of progress and positive engagement with each other is going to help.
0: Yeah. So let's dig into the numbers a little bit and transition to talk about child health, especially in the Hispanic community. So just a few statistics that I think are really important. Latino children account for one fourth of U.S. children under 18. And by 2050, or maybe earlier, they'll make up a third of our, of that population. 18 million Latino children that are currently living in the United States. Of those 18 million, 95% are U.S. born citizens. New projections show that the number of low-income Latino youth could increase by 45% if the current levels of inequality persist in the future. So we have big numbers of kids. We have some looming challenges right before us. On the positive side, however, we know that since earlier in, in the 2000s, When in 2004, about 67% of Latinos who entered ninth grade actually completed high school. Mm -hmm. Now that number is way up. Back then, it was compared to 80% of uh, white students, and that was a 13-point difference. In more recent years, it shrunk down to a 7-point difference. So there were progress being made in certain places as well. So big challenges and big progress. On the healthcare side of things, the Affordable Care Act and other things that have happened in our country have led to Hispanic children having better health insurance coverage. You know, And so that medical insurance rate has really uh, jumped in big ways. So... It's quite, and and of course, it's quite possible that in the last couple of years, these statistics have changed quite a bit because our society has undergone so much change. So, my question for you is from your perspective, how are Hispanic children in the United States doing these days?
1: The data. Rocks and the census just came out with even more certainty about those numbers. So those numbers are real. And you know, like, yes, it's, it's something to wrap right yourself around it, right? It, those numbers are real and we have to actually start understanding what they mean. The fact, Rob, that you mentioned by 2050, one third of the population will be Latino is like literally hello, hello, hola, hello, hello, hola. And it will continue growing and that every minute a Latino turns 18, it's uh, something that we have to understand, the future voter, the future taxpayer, um, the future employee, the future consumer. But also, if we don't prepare ourselves, if we don't understand that one in every four Latinos is obese and the one in every four Latinos is under malnourished, that 40% in certain states, Latino women, Latino mothers are suffering from you know, like an absolute breakdown in mental health because of the burden of having to work two or three jobs. If we don't understand how important it is to get Latinos to be more than the 2% of technology, and that if we're going to be the generation, you know, like the future workforce, we have to be well prepared. And if we're going to be the majority, you know, like by by 2060, we're going to cross the majority minority of the country, we have to be well nourished because otherwise American competitiveness is at risk. So we absolutely need to understand and wrap around the a huge relevance of Latino progress. Latino progress is American progress. And Hispanic values are American values. All we want is to follow the American dream and do great. And we're there in an aging America paying the taxes $215 billion a year, paying the social security one hundred billions a year. Latinos start working younger and, and older than any other group. So how are Latino children doing today? It's changing. It is changing and it depends on where you are in America, but there is a trend to Latinidad and there's a trend to come out and being able to be proud of being Hispanic. There's a trend actually to go back to speaking Spanish, even if you were born in America, even if your parents a generation ago were trying everybody to assimilate and deny your Latinidad. Even if 76% of Latinos today have to pretend there's someone they're not in the country, That is changing. But that is where we have a crucial moment right now in history for people under 18 turning 18 to grab with the education, with the data and to become proud Latinos and to set the record straight. The discrimination happens. One in every four Latinos is bullied at work. 70% of Latinos, again, 76% of Latinos cannot be themselves at work. We're victims of 40% of hate crimes in America. So discrimination and racism doesn't actually escape us. And the lack of opportunities is real as well. And yet, Rob, if you ask me, how is a Latino children doing today? Well, much better than we were 10 years ago. And it will be much, much better than we will ever be. And we have a chance right now to really cross the finishing line. All the work that our ancestors did, all those two to three jobs, all those bleeding hands of our mothers coming from picking up potatoes and onions uh, so that we can have first uh, generation education is going to pay off if young Latinos and allies recognize that Latinos need unity and pride so that we don't have to hide ourselves so that we can actually look for the opportunities that we have.
0: So let's talk about that. When I attended your conference, I was struck by your powerful advocacy around all kinds of issues for Hispanic people in the United States, including kids at one point, And you've been touching on it a little bit today, but I want to get a bit more pointed at one point you mentioned uh, during that conference that for the first time in your career in fighting for all kinds of causes, the facts and statistics are on your side. What do you mean by that specifically?
1: It is clear that Latinos are powerful and positive contributors to the country. It is clear that if you're a company, you cannot hire and you cannot sell with Latinos. It is clear that if you're a politician, you cannot win any election without Latinos. So it is just like it makes business sense. It makes American sense to invest in Latinos, to recognize Latinos, to elevate Latinos, to bring Latinos as what we are, Americans. Latinos are 100% Hispanics and 100% Americans. In my previous life, I've been always fighting against the current to say like, OK, so how do we fight poverty? It makes no business sense. It makes no political sense. And yet we have to do it. It's a moral imperative. In this case, it's not only the good thing to do, it's the smart thing to do and the only thing to do.
0: Yeah. So we at Action for Healthy Kids, we've been working for almost 20 years now to create a movement in support of improved child health. So I want to talk a little bit more about awareness building and advocacy. In some ways, we've made tremendous progress, tremendous. For example, I can't think of a school that doesn't have some kind of program around health and wellness, including both physical and mental health. During the pandemic, schools demonstrated, and now it is incontrovertible, that they are a powerful, part of the safety net for kids and families. They're important sources of healthy food for millions of children in the country, millions, including Hispanic kids and others, whites, blacks, others. As we know more clearly than ever, schools are critical sources of support around social and emotional health for kids. There is no debating this Mm -hmm. point anymore. And perhaps most importantly, we now know for sure that schools are an important refuge for children who are experiencing trauma. All kinds of kids in almost every community in the country, probably every community in the country. So schools we now know for the health of kids are irreplaceable for the health and well-being of kids. It is not just about their math score or their reading capability. It is about the health of kids and their general well-being. So with this in mind, I'd like your opinion on something. What are some of the ways that parents and educators, since you're an expert advocate and you're leading a powerful movement... What are some of the ways that we as parents and educators in the Action for Healthy Kids network can better advocate for and support our kids?
1: That is so crucial. And I cannot emphasize enough how much I admire the work that you guys do, how essential it is, and how important it is even for the work that I do to have partners like you where we can actually collaborate and bring collaboration and powerful synergy so that we can really reach everyone. But I commend the work that you do and the work that you're doing for my community as well. Thank you. Muchas gracias. Well, I think that parents and schools have an incredible role to play, particularly in the in this transition generation let's call it that way. Let's call it the breakthrough generation for Latinos. These kids that are in school today are the breakthrough. Either we break through and make history or we might actually have to delay it for a couple of decades. But I am absolutely convinced that parents and educators have to go through the data with children all the time. let The data to empower children, to tell them Latinos are Eight, nineteen percent of the population going to thirty. We are like the purchasing power number one. The economy of Latinos grows faster than China and India. Is the third largest economy in the country. We're the workforce future. Where the you know like we're just like all that data educating or saying the first baseball player on the ma- major league of baseball Latino was in 1902. Luis Miguel Castro in 1927. You know, talk about the heroes, talk about our role in the wars. We're the second most condecorated minority in the country. We have won more condecorations than any other minority, but we don't know it because the chapters of the history where Latinos have made a difference have been ripped off. So it's a role of parents and teachers to bring us our pride back, to bring us that mirror where we can see that we're positive contributors, that we're not only negative as the media and everyone tells us. But not only that, The role that we play in actually making sure that the American dream happens, the role that parents and teachers play in making sure that our children know how important it is to be healthy, to be mentally healthy, to move, to eat well, to have a sense of body. We work so hard that we just don't feel it and we just collapse. That's why it's so much burnout. That's why, you know, like, because we have to work so, so much because we're not earning enough. We just never notice when our body's about to collapse. And so it's an awareness raising. It's a pride building. And it's an incredible sense of giving us back, giving those children and those next generations the responsibility and the encouragement that they have of being the breakthrough generation that really can finish the job.
0: Now, if you had to give one practical tip, meaning parents and teachers go out and do this one thing, what would that one thing be? One practical tip to help change the trajectory of the experience of kids in our country?
1: Become a factivist. Know the facts and share the facts every time all around. Do you remember that film, the... Big, fat Greek wedding where the grandfather always said, "Uh, yeah, and this word is coming from the Greek root, this and this and that. Just we have to become that about Latino facts, saying always trying to set the record straight. Latinos are positive contributors to the country with every fact that you have, from history to role models, to data, to understanding our role in society. We just don't have it. And we have to have parents and educators and the entire system bringing us back an image that we have never had, that we deserve, which is our place in this country.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So like you, I spent several years at the first part of my career working in international development, including a partnership project I had with the United Nations, by the way. So that was very interesting. It was an amazing experience that I'd recommend to any recent college graduate looking for a better understanding of the world. For me, it was absolutely life-changing. Growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, it was very isolated and it, was, it changed the way I think about everything literally everything. So you've worked on humanitarian causes for 25 years with organizations like UNICEF and the UN Refugee Agency, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. How did your time working on those issues, how does it compare to what you're doing now with We Are All Human? And maybe even more pointedly, do we do things differently in the United States than other places in the world in ways that you think are positive or, you know, in ways that aren't contributing well to what we're trying to accomplish?
1: Rob, I've never worked in in a national agenda. I always work in global frameworks, working more or less with at least 50 countries at the same time. So trying to understand how What unites us as humanity, as countries? What do United States and Uganda and maybe China have in common so that we can create those global policies and those global frameworks? So coming to America, for me, the first thing was like trying to land into a national, a single. Topic, So it makes me more focused and less actually, you know, like just like framework person. I do think it's very different. It's very different. And again, what I was saying is I think that my entire career working in every single continent, very focused on in Asia and Africa, prepared me for this job. This is personal. This is the first time in my life that I'm talking about my people, my career. I've been working with AIDS or maternal mortality or things that I don't necessarily have in my shoes. And so advocating for something that is yours, that is personal, that, you know, like you really think that my daughter might actually make the same salary if we really do this well. She might have a chance to not ever having to dream small or, you know, like or think that she's not deserving of something. So that makes a big difference for me working in America. It's, you know, like it's a different, different entity than having in multilateral, uh, you know, like in a in, in United Nations type of thing It's faster, more fast and furious. But at the same time, I do think that I suffer a bit of the divisiveness and the polarization that I feel in in almost every activity, in almost every aspect of life. I wish I really wish a healing for America's divisiveness and for the country to come back together and embrace each other. I do think that that would make it a a huge difference and returning to the America that I was dreaming of being part of when I was a kid.
0: Yeah, I think you got to my next question. I'll ask it anyway, in case you'd like to add to it. What can we learn from other countries in your experience? By the way, I'm sure other countries can learn from the United States in certain ways, but we certainly can learn from other countries and their experiences. As you've worked these years, what do you think are a couple of the things that we could learn from.
1: Like I'm no expert, but America, as many other countries, I think in the world have been falling on on that path of polarization and divisiveness that I think it makes it really hard for people to be normal, whether you're a politician that you can just like talk normal, that you don't have to go into, you know, like extremes to get the attention of people. I do think that this social media sort of like hype, is, you know, like is is something that I see very prevalent in in American culture, which, again, is not the only culture, but I do think that there's a combination when you're in a very divided environment and you have the platforms that are like really motivating you to keep on engaging on areas that are more extreme. I wish there would be a little bit more regulation of that, and you know, like to tone it down and for less incentives, either for social media platforms or to politicians, just to become a little bit more normal, more human, less, you know, like less caffeinated altogether. If I compare it, for example, to um Swiss citizen, a Mexican and Swiss. In Switzerland, there are seven presidents. Every single one of those presidents rides a bicycle to go to work. They are boring, like there's no tomorrow. They don't have a lot of power. They don't have a lot to say. They just like make sure that things work. And obviously, you know, like the invert democracy is not the same as democracy, but it is a bit more calm, I would say, by far more boring, less interesting to be in an environment, you know, like if you want to be in, in politics. But I do think that there's something to be learned or something to be appreciated about not necessarily have to be electric all the time.
0: Yeah, great. Well, th- this has been a fantastic conversation. We're going to wrap it up with one final question. So if you had to pick one
1: thing, what would be your wish for kids in the United States? If I had to pick one wish for kids in the United States, I would hope that it would be on equity, that everyone has a fair chance, that everyone has a chance to dream the same size of dreams uh, than anyone else. And I'm thinking about Latinos, but I also think that I wish children can be by far more alert of the power that they have to really direct politicians and to really direct organizations and companies, because everybody's watching about your choices, whether you want to buy or work in a place or even be in a place. So be aware of your power, use your superpower and be responsible to actually make this world a better place.
0: Well, thank you so much, Claudia. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you joining us. It's really just been such a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thank you so, so very much again, Rob.
0: A big thank you to Claudia for taking time to speak with us today about some of the exciting work she's doing with We Are All Human and a few of the inspiring campaigns she's spearheaded to create positive change around the world. Remember, you can find more information by visiting our website at actionforhealthykids.org or checking us out on Instagram and Twitter. If you're enjoying the show... Please rate and leave a review so more people can find us or check out some of our past episodes. I'm Rob Bisegli, and thanks for listening to Kids Can from Action for Healthy Kids.